Hey, you are listening to The Workplace Leader. This is the podcast where we go behind the scenes of corporate real estate, talking to industry experts about how they shape the next generation workplace. I'm your host, Sabine M. And in today's episode, I'm speaking with Rashad Delft. Rashad is Head of People Analytics at Chevron. Hi, everyone. Today, I'm speaking to Rashad Delph, who just recently became Head of People Analytics at Chevron. And uh, I will ask him more about that. But first things first. Hi, Rashad. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you for inviting me. Well, it's my pleasure. Let's start right away with a bit of, I call it housekeeping. So you work for Chevron. Maybe you can share a little bit of what Chevron does for people who don't know. And then also, you just recently became head of people analytics. Maybe you can also tell us what your role before was at Chevron and how it has changed now. Okay. So Chevron, as we like to refer to ourselves, is the human energy company. So we are, you know, primarily in the oil and gas industry, you know, so we produce, you know, for upstream, downstream, midstream, you know, in that area, in that arena. So joining Chevron, I started a new division within the organization called Future of Work Strategies. Uh, Within there, we took a lot of our external big data analytics, brought in predictive analytics, led all of our employment branding that we see thus far, but also understanding where trends and analysis were going to help the organization. Within a year, we combine that group with our workforce analytics group to you know, bring in our people analytics. And so within that, what we're looking to do is bring in our internal people analytics, but also bringing external data resources to help us One, get better with our predictive analytics, more advanced analytics and modeling, but also bringing in the internal data set to match with the external benchmarking so that we can understand where we are to a subset of our peers, but also understand to organizations who we inspire to be, but also help us with better indicating our KPIs and OKRs across the organization to help our different areas of our business concerning their people and talent analytics. How do I become a head of people analytics? What's your professional background? A lot of luck. That's what I would tell you. But (laughs) so my professional background is prior to Chevron, I worked for a Fortune 500 tier one automotive supplier where I was head of talent acquisition, talent management and diversity and inclusion. Prior to that, I spent around 15 years at the number one food manufacturing company within the world, where I led all of talent acquisition. I worked in immigration. I worked in recruitment compliance, global mobility as an HRBP and in recruitment. You know, so I would say for someone to, you have some people who are classically trained in people analytics and, and, you know, have a degree either in mathematics or a technical side. For me, I've just always been a very much an analytical person, bringing data in all the jobs in which I worked in. I think HR professionals sometimes get seen as not being people who are very much data driven. And I've always let the data allow me to 
make indicators of what's going on within the business. And so that's kind of how my journey has led into me getting into people analytics. But, you know, really, I think it's having a curious mindset, having a growth mindset and looking at how do we transform the business, but doing it in a matter of that we're using data and fact-based information to help us make decisions at a faster, better, quicker rate. Ooh. Now, I do have the feeling the answers to many of my other guests' questions might come from you. <laughs> I've got already a lot of clues on what I need to dig into deeper because the podcast is about workplace. What does the most common workplace setup look like at Chevron? And I do understand that it's probably very difficult to pinpoint to one model, but maybe also what's the work model today, as in, is it hybrid? Is it office-based or else? Yeah, and as everyone with the pandemic that is happening and still happening, we've seen a shift in how we work within the organization. Right now, our structure is a hybrid working model. You know, one thing I would say is we will continue to keep that model fluid as well. Uh, within Chevron, we typically practice what we call a 980 work schedule. So a majority of our office workers work. Um, you have the option of working nine hours a day and then getting one day off every other week. Right now, within our hybrid model, what we're looking at is primarily three days in the office, two days being remotely, that being usually for us Tuesday through Thursday in the office, but have that flexibility of understanding people needs and, you know, trying to understand and meet people where they are. Like I say, this model is very fluent as we're all getting adjusted to it, but that's the model in which we're trying to build and learn about. You know, one thing about Chevron is it is a relationship-based business. So having that time in the office, building those relationships, understanding the culture of the organization is very much important to us. So we want to make sure that we can keep that structural understanding of building relationships, understanding our core values as an organization, but also creating that flexibility where people can have that equilibrium of how they work and how they adapt their family life to their personal life to meet them where they are as individuals and not look at them collectively as a body, but making sure that we're thinking each and every one as who they are in themselves. Ooh, that's a really, really good point. Now, I noted before that she said predictive analytics, but I do think predictive analytics stems a bit from like having big data, but having a lot of individual flexibility kind of goes against predictability. How do you handle that? Uh, I, I wouldn't say so. You know, once you start looking at people sentiment, if you can look at it from a collective range, even though you have the flexibility we tend to always have certain behavior models in which we can categorize. And so even with predictive analytics, if we're looking at things from a race or a gender perspective, or even from a, you know, looking at it from an age or a certain level within the organization, all those things can lead to predictive analytics and give us a correlation of what's happening with our team members by certain behaviors. So even if you have a large subset, it's good to understand the trends you're seeing within the organization, but also 
we bring that external lens to that as well. So if we're seeing certain models of attrition happening within other parts of not necessarily our organization, but even within the oil and gas industry, within the tech industry, you can use those data in that subset of information to help you aggregate and come together to create those predictive analytics. Yeah. Recently, someone I had a discussion with someone who said, when you do data analysis internally, you're sometimes running the risk of verifying your own assumptions. Do you think that's true? How do you make sure you don't fall into that trap? You know what? We were talking about this as a team the other day. And I think what really helps with this area is one, not working in a silo. So working in you know collaborative groups, having people second verify information. But I think what really helps and what I try to do is have a really diverse team. At the end of the day, we all have our biases, sub, you know, subconscious and conscious. But also with that, if you have a very diverse group pulling subsets of information, people are going to find different analysis and which I think will help to eliminate some of those reassuring things that we're looking for within data and taking the data for what the data truly stands for. So I really believe it's important to have that diverse group of individuals from age, from gender, from geographical locations to really help us with understanding the data. Because I do feel like if you have people of the same mindset, then you will start to, you're more second verifying the information you were looking to find compared to really being able to look at the data from a holistic standpoint to understand what the data is telling you. Yeah, agree. Absolutely. What have you found then are drivers of employee engagement? And can you actually see differences in age groups or in geographies, for instance? Yeah, you can. Um, we've seen, you know, different We've seen a lot of data around subsets. If it was, you know, African Americans, if it was Asians, we've seen information of from a generational standpoint. We've seen it from what we'll call a grade or position level standpoint. So we've really been able to understand data and, you know, things that we have to look at is, hey, we may have a great attrition rate. We may have a very low turnover rate within the organization. But we will start looking at certain functions saying, what is the turnover within IT? What is the turnover with HR or finance or looking at it by age or looking at it by years of service to see, do people start to leave after three or five years of service? So we really try to look at the data and what we call is do a double click on each area to start seeing, are there underlying trends, not maybe in the big subset of the data, but are there underlying trends in the data that we need to start building our predictive models around? Yeah. And what are people looking for in a job? I believe it has changed. And I know there's always been differences. I read a lot. So I'm based in Europe, read a lot about in the US, the job being very much ingrained into personal identity. And that now due to the pandemic, things have shifted a little so that people are valuing their personal freedom more mm -hmm. than the job that they have. So is this something you would see also? I, I mean, I think people's priorities have shifted 
since the pandemic. And we're trying to look at that pre and post to understand the differences. You know, I think people still, I think flexibility has become very important to people. As I look at it by a regional standpoint, what we have seen is within the Asia Pacific continent, safety, you know, career progression has become really important within the Latin America, South America. We saw very much learning and development becoming important within the U.S. We've seen flexibility come important. But I think the two things that we continue to see across the globe that everyone still cares about is understanding career trajectory and seeing career pathing and then compensation. And so, you know, even if you look at flexibility, looking at learning and development, looking at health and safety, I still think what we're looking at is compensation has still been a very key factor, but also understanding. And I won't say it's about being promoted. It's about how do you upskill and reskill yourself Mm -hmm. to better leverage your skills for that next opportunity. And so as we do see a shift, I think people are going to start looking at who offers certain flexibility who offers certain remote practices. But I think the key drivers that we're seeing are still going to be around compensation and also career growth as well. But I will say, I think generations are looking at it very differently. And that's one thing I think we're going to have to start considering where I think we've seen with boomers and Generation X, where they have probably one job of one source of income. What we are seeing is in you know, in the younger generations, they are more looking at having multiple streams of income, not being tied to one organization, looking at the gig economy. So how does that change the landscape of how employers go after candidates and employees as well? And it might be that as well. I always forget which generation no box I fall in. But I think when I started my career, I pretty much was set up for this like straight lined up because I have a degree in business administration, like lined up typical career path kind of progressing within one company. And just life happened and I decided that's not what I wanted. And now I've been like kind of a job hopper, you could say, like always branching off into a related field, but a little bit different. So I actually have, I said, I have a business admin degree, but it is in real estate management. But now I'm working in marketing for real estate, kind of. So it's something I never envisioned happening. And it happened through this upskilling. So I think it does not necessarily happen for younger generations only, but also older generations. Your work life gets that much longer. I wouldn't want to be tied to that one job for my whole life and never learning something new. No, definitely understand. Yeah. A little detour and a personal story. Let's go back to business. Big question. And you tapped upon the world of work is changing. And I love that you said new generations are not necessarily looking at an employment at only one company, but seeing where interests match and how they can contribute possibly at different gigs. So what is the impact of workplace on people still? How important is that office? I think the workplace is important. Uh, But also, I think we have to change how the workplace is structured. You're starting to see more companies go to what we call hoteling setup. So you don't have a 
you rent out a space for when you need to come into the office. I think most offices haven't been set up from a hybrid technology standpoint. We're so used to everyone coming together in a conference room, but I think the days are gone when everyone will be able to meet in a specific location at a certain time. So how do we create that technology that meets the need as well from that perspective? And I think that is coming along the way within the workplace. I think how we train and develop individuals and us moving away from some of the static training and bringing in technology and how we use things in our personal life will probably become the same as how we use them in our professional life. If someone is looking to do something, they may go find a two or three minute tutorial on LinkedIn, or they may, if they're trying to fix something in their house, they may find something on YouTube to help them figure out how to do something very quickly. So why isn't our trainings within our professional environment the same? So how do we get to that trying to, you know, that learning model from a professional standpoint? I think we will see very much a change in that and giving people micro doses of learning compared to that what we see people sitting in for two to three hour workshops. And so I think there are going to be a lot of changes within the workplace, but Right now, we're all in the middle of being kind of put in the box, shaken all up and thrown back out with the pandemic. And so, you know, we're living in this model as it's being created as well. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to the data part of things, because it seems to me you speak from a place of authority. And I do know for a fact that a lot of organizations struggle, real estate organizations struggle at the point where it is about owning the data and getting access to the data. So my question is actually, how are you set up? What are the data sources that you have available? Who owns the data? Who maintains the data? You know, one thing we like to say at Chevron is, you know, data is in our DNA. And so, you know, we're working to the process and I can't say we're fully there, but it's a growth mindset of, You know, I wouldn't say that anyone owns the data. I think we have to get away from the days of saying, well, IT owns this data or HR owns this data. And us get to an area where we can become more around data transparency and sharing the data to help the organization make better business decisions. We may not always know what data will help people with making certain business decisions, And that's something we're trying to get more comfortable with as an organization as well. And so right now, you know, we still have owners of certain data, but we are trying to get into an area in a comfortability where the data is owned by the entire organization is not owned by a subset or individuals or functions because data, if used correctly, can only make us better. But we also have to get it to a point where our organization and our team members and understand we're trusting them with the data and building that trust along where, you know, the data is secure within the organization. So it's one thing to have data transparency, but you cannot not have data security to ensure that the data is in the right hands of the right individuals as well to help them make the decisions. You just noted as well that we don't necessarily know, or you don't necessarily know, which data will help making a business decision. 
What is the data that helps you make decisions around people? Well, you know, we, we use a, a lot of subset of data. If it's attrition data, if it's hiring data, if it's looking at exit interviews, we do what we call post surveys of understanding the voice of our employees. You know, we use a lot of different data to help us, you know, if it's total remuneration or total rewards as well, looking at that data. So we try to bring in all aspects of people data, but also not just from an internal standpoint, but I think it's as important to understand external trends that are happening so that we may know how to pivot or understand what the market is telling us. And so, you know, it's one thing to understand what's happening internally to your organization, but as things start to shift, if it's globally, if it's within a certain geographical region, it's also important to understand what's happening in those markets as well. So that if we have to go out to find talent, understanding what degree types people are going after, all those different areas are important. And that's why we're looking at this group as people analytics, because we want to make sure that we're looking at all subsets of data that have to do with people and not just looking at attrition or turnover But we're looking at how long does it take to fill a job? We're looking at quality of hire. We're looking at, you know, manager satisfaction scores. All those things help us become better individuals and better employers. And how does the people data trickle through? So who gets, my question is, who gets measured by people analytics? Is it just the HR group? Or is that also applied to other business leaders so that they're not only measured by shareholder value or? No, we're, we look at it across the organization. So I wouldn't say just HR, but we try to look at it across the organization because if you're a people leader, we try to hold people accountable for leading the group and leading and building better leaders for tomorrow. And so I do think we have to start providing people insights of how do they become better leaders? How do we get them better training? Just, you know, sometimes it's just doing one thing better than what you did the year before. It's not necessarily about trying to do 15 things at once, but how do you do one thing better than what you did the year before? And that's what we try to do in the organization. Very reasonable. That does make a lot of sense to me. Another, so I'm actually coming with all the problems I ever heard of to you. <laughs> so then the other one is, if you have all the data and the insights, how do you use them to come to impact and actions actually, and not just have it all the data lying around? Data is one thing. And one thing I have, I talk to the team about a lot of times is, How do we influence with storytelling as well? You know, it's one thing to have the data, but how do you articulate that story so that people can understand it? Um, what, how I try to explain things in this world is the two M's. How is it memorable and how is it measurable? And so, you know, with the data, You have to understand the story that shit, not that you want to tell, but you have to tell the story in which the data is leading you to tell, which is very different because we can all build our own biases of what we want the data to tell us. But how do you tell that story? And I always use the iPhone as an example of, 
you know, simplification is the form of simplicity. We have to be able to tell the story where people can get it in micro doses and either through a picture or through, you know, short text. If we have, you know, a lot of numbers or graphs on the page with a lot of words, then it leads to interpretation of what the data means. So how can we tell the data story and short phrases so that people can understand it and understand it from a global perspective as well. So the less text, the less words lead to less internal interpretation or people developing their own meaning of the data. Mm -hmm. And how quickly can you actually pivot? So if the data was going to tell you that something was off, because it's a question that often Again, I'm coming from a workplace management perspective and real estate by definition is kind of immobile. We're not used to everything being in flux. Previously, real estate project management was very much you put the desks in the place and then people were in that building for the next 10 years until the lease ended. So if you were to inform your colleagues in the facility management or real estate group, would they be able to actually take actions from that and change I think you have to look at it and you do have lease agreements, you have things that you've purchased. And so there is a timing perspective to it. But I think it's also ensuring that how much are we doing our due diligence in processes before we sign agreements. And so we have a very great purchasing group that helps us there. But also with it is creating offices that create that flexibility. So understanding the long-term growth of a group. So we have what we call strategic workforce planning. So we're looking at projects and that's going to take 10 to 20 years and understanding how do we grow and shift with the workers that we need, but also how do we create those areas and flexibilities and work with our real estate team to say, how do we convert offices or spaces to be certain things uh, where we have a culture enablers group right now that takes the time to understand what do our employees need? How do they work in their best environments? And so we create that flexibility within that model as well so that we can be fluent across those areas. So I think it's very important to, you know, but I also think what helps us there is having a teams of teams approach. So you have the purchasing team, you have the real estate team, You have our team, what we call Simric, that helps us with organization of our office spaces. We have our general managers. So it's not just one or an individual in silos. It's truly a working team and teams of teams approach to help us with making these business decisions as well. If you could give one advice on what the new skill sets are that workplace leaders should adopt, what would it be? You know, I always think empathy is important into the workplace. I think over what we've seen, digital fluency has become really important in the workplace as well. Understanding how to manage in a hybrid environment has really been key. Understanding that people have different communication styles and working across generations within the workplace. And then always in becoming more knowledgeable of tools and resources that are becoming available on the market. You know, those are the areas I try to tell people to always keen and be watchful of, but always have a, a growth mindset of how do we get better? How You know, I may not be able to do it today, but how do I be able to do it tomorrow? 
And so having that growth mindset definitely helps us along the way as well. Mm -hmm. Coming back to the workplace as a physical space, a last time, I promise, you noted earlier that your model is three days in office, typically Tuesday to Thursday. Do you monitor that with occupancy data or is it like on a trust level and people can come? You know, I wouldn't say we're monitoring that because I think you have to build from an area of trust with your employees and also understanding. So we do have employee surveys that we send out on a quarterly basis. Our recent one asked, how often do you come into the office? How is the flexible model working for you? And we allow our employees to let us know that. But we also are trying to look at how do we measure productivity within our work structure and frame as well. And so, you know, we try to use that data to help us with making better decisions. But I wouldn't say that we're trying to monitor when people are in the office because everyone has a different flexibility of what they may have going on in their life at in that point in time. Yeah. Now, I learned a little trick today. I'm going to try it with you. Is there something that I haven't asked you yet that you're surprised I didn't want to know? <laughs> that You know what? I always ask that question. And I, I usually turn in and say, <laughs> is there something that you felt like I didn't answer today that you would like more insight on? But I would say no. I, I think, you know, I, I appreciated the time. I'm always here to willing to answer and answer any question. I think as we get into this future of work, you know, things that we want to maybe start looking at more of is different generations within the workplace and understanding how does that work within this system. Understanding, and I think we'll get to a point of saying, are companies that are more flexible and or having a hybrid model? So understanding does fully remote, a hybrid work or full-time in the office lend to more productivity? You know, those are things I think we will start to get to over time that we may not have the answers to today, but I would love to continue the, that conversation and us start to go down that path as we learn more of this model. Well, I learned with this question is that it indicates the end of the episode, although I have two more questions that I ask everybody, but no worries. They're like the easy breezy ones, I think. So one is, I grant you a magical wish to solve any workplace problem. What would you choose? Ooh, I think the workplace problem that I would choose would be creating a better work-life balance for each individual. Very well said. <laughs> I cannot disagree with that. I will uh, say that's a good thing to do. And then the very last question, it's a little bit selfish of me. Who else should I have on the podcast? And is there something that you would like to ask them? Oh, who should you have on the podcast? Hmm. I would go to people, person who I really enjoy working for, She's now the CHRO of Adaptive, and her name is Maria Trickett. Um, she is a brilliant mind that I've always enjoyed. She's very much of a thought leader. And the other probably would be the chief diversity officer for McDonald's. Ooh. And his name is Reginald Miller. And both are 
former people I used to work for, but also have a lot of admiration and respect for. That sounds awesome. Thank you for the recommendations or referrals. And thank you as well for this conversation. I feel like I've never downloaded that much information in that short of time. And I enjoyed it very, very much at the same time as well. So thank you. That's what you get when you get people from data analytics. So we have a lot of information. We try to spit it out to you. (laughs) Yeah, you are the living promotion of data analytics, I would say. Well, no, I appreciate the time and, and thank you for the opportunity today. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. If you have enjoyed this episode of The Workplace Leader, there's more. Go visit our blog and have a look at some of the other topics we have covered. We've just released the Definitive Guide to Workplace Analytics, for instance. Or tune into our next episode of The Workplace Leader. <laughs>